So more excitement. Another handout. And I had to smile. This was already a very dense piece of paper. It was meant to go landscape. (laughs) So get out your magnifying glasses. And I thought for tonight we'd start at the top left corner and just work our way down through (laughs) all of that. At this point in the retreat, a few of you have mentioned, so I just want to acknowledge, you may feel information overload. You know that every night and morning we sit up here and uh, give instructions and teachings. Um, And it's understandable that in the context of retreat, where the mind is really quietening, to take in a lot of concepts can seem uh, unnecessary. But that's not my intention tonight to kind of add to that, even though it may seem so by this, but really to reframe what we're doing here as giving directions rather than information. Because information implies something we need to remember, something we have to track. Directions are like, oh, from here you go there. And even uh, a certain kind of direction. Um, You know, it used to be a while ago that it was kind of sophisticated to get your directions by printing them off, you know, the internet from Google Maps or whatever, and you'd have your steps of, you know, all the turns and whatever. But if you manage to miss take a misstep to go off that set of directions, you were lost, right? Because there was no other reference points. So, you know, the best thing, of course, is that real-time GPS that responds to where you are. And if you do go off the kind of clear uh, path, it'll say, you know, no, no, you know, take this, take this turn now, or to get back, go this way. So hopefully what we're doing is more like that, the real-time GPS of just giving you the general guidelines. And you're the one that obviously has to take the journey, but we're just helping you orient yourself. But you have to be a little careful. I've got a friend who always feels that he's kind of being scolded by his GPS when she says, recalculating. (laughs) You know, and she seems a little frustrated and disappointed that you have not followed her directions. So we have to listen to the inner voice of our GPS navigation system and make sure it's one that's just kind and actually offering us these directions out of compassion, not this is how it should be, this is what your experience should be. I like this set of chart, this chart, even though it's quite complicated, it's actually compiled by a Dharma practitioner, teacher, Patrick Thornton, um, and I hand it out in, you know, certain teaching situations and in a long retreat like this is one uh, where it could be helpful because it just basically gives more, rather than lists, it puts it more in the context of a map and all the interrelationships between the different lists. If we think of what the Buddha teaches as lists, again, it seems very static, very linear and kind of regimented. And a map and even a 3D map is actually a more appropriate analogy to his teachings and what we're trying to do here because it's very alive and responsive and fluid and we're, you know, moving about within this terrain. It's not a linear, orderly progression. And so if you could read this, this is maybe what you would see that it was going to show you that. But I thought it was helpful because, again, you don't have to look at it now, but if you can read it and you can see that we've covered a lot of this terrain already in the discourses and the instructions, in the interviews with you. Um, 
so it, and it can be helpful just to see it put out. Some people are very visual, so it's helpful to have things written down. Um, what I'm actually going to be focusing on tonight is not all of it, but the, top, the middle right-hand top area, which is called the fetus, samyojana. Um, and it's basically carrying on from Carol's talk of last night on the Third Noble Truth, about cessation, about the ending of suffering, and talking about how, especially in our tradition, this notion of enlightenment is understood. Because it's something that we tend to shy away from. You know, there are those few taboo topics, sex, money. Well, enlightenment is one of those that we just don't talk about that much. Um, And it's understandable, because any time you try to put something like this into words, it can seem whatever, clunky, it doesn't quite, you know, it's a finger pointing at the moon. But I think it's helpful to actually talk about the map that the Buddha laid out and just see, is there something in that that's helpful for us? Not to say that's what we should experience or anything, but just the map, the terrain. Because many of us from all different sources have all kinds of ideas about enlightenment. And if we're willing to admit it, it's often some kind of fairy tale idea of a, a zap, a bolt from above, where something happens where, you know, I become enlightened and everyone can know that I'm enlightened. And isn't that great? I'm so enlightened now. And we live happily ever after, you know, after that experience. We're completely changed and free from suffering. I wish it were that simple. Jack Cornfield actually wrote a whole book, some of you may know, called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, where he just went and interviewed all uh, people from all kinds of walks of life, a lot uh, Buddhist, but uh, other traditions as well, about their experience of awakening and then what happened after that. As he said, the laundry. And this is from that book where someone said, enlightenment is only the beginning, is only a step of the journey. You can't cling to that as a new identity or you're in immediate trouble. You have to get back down into the messy business of life to engage with life for years afterward. Only then can you integrate what you have learned. Only then can you learn perfect trust. So this experience of, yes, there, it is possible for the mind to wake up. to to understand in a new way, and that waking up has to be integrated for it to be of real value. So as I said, we don't often talk about it, um, and there can even be a sense that in our particular tradition, the Theravada tradition, there's not much said about the enlightenment and the stages and the experience. So Ajahn's Amaro and Pasano, who were the uh, at that time, the co-abbots up at our local monastery, Abayagiri, spent years combi- compiling this book called The Island, and the subtitle is An Anthology of the Buddha's Teachings on Nibbana. And it's just a wonderful resource. And as you say, it's not nothing. As you can see, it's not nothing. That he said a lot about the awakened mind and how to cultivate it, how to integrate it, how to understand it. And so from a lot of what I'm going to talk about tonight is taken from my reading in that book. Um, 
where you know the Buddha talks about how this process of more and more freedom is developed in a practitioner. One of the lovely things in the suttas that the, when the Buddha talks about nibbana in Pali, the word is nibbana in Sanskrit, nirvana, the unconditioned, the, the, the enlightened experience. There's a beautiful passage where there's 33 synonyms for nibbana, and I won't read them all, but it concludes with freedom, independence of reliance, the island, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, the beyond. That's why they named their book The Island, just pointing to this experience of freedom that the Buddha spoke about again and again and again as possible. So from those original texts, over the thousands of years in the different countries that Buddhism has has flourished in and the different traditions that has been transmitted in, there's been very differing views about what enlightenment is and how to practice towards it. There's even some Buddhist countries or traditions within countries where they don't believe enlightenment is possible anymore, that uh, sasana, the Buddha's dispensation, has so diminished that enlightenment isn't possible. There are other places where you can go and practice for the month, a month, and at the end of a month of intensive practice, they give you a certificate and say you're a stream enterer, you're enlightened. So, you know, we're somewhere between those two models. <laughs> but if we gave you a certificate, would it make a difference? You know, you've, you've been here a month now. And Ajahn Chah, who was the teacher of Ajahn Sumedho and, Ajahn, uh, and Jack, uh, and many of our teachers, he would say things like, if you've been in the monastery practicing for five years and you're not enlightened yet, you're wasting your time. So just this kind of freshness of approach around it. I also like a book by a 12th century uh, Korean Zen master called Shinul. His name is Shinul. And the book is Tracing Back the Radiance. It's a lovely title. But the subtitle is Sudden Awakening, Gradual Cultivation. And in the book, he talks about recognizing the mind's natural radiance that Carol was talking about last night, but that the practice is learning to act as well as be enlightened, and that there's a process that needs to happen for that integration to take place. He says, this is from the book, although he has awakened to the fact that his original nature is no different from that of the Buddha's, the beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly, and so he must continue to cultivate while relying on this awakening. So again, that sense of the awakening can happen and be immediate and profound, but the integration of that awakening actually takes time, and the forces of the mind that that keep us uh, in ignorance are strong and need to be seen through again and again and again. And as I said, I want to talk about the traditional understanding of uh, awakening, enlightenment, from the text in our tradition, where the Buddha would usually talk about four stages of awakening, where ten fetters, samyojana, that's this, what's on the chart, on the sort of, the, the fetters, uh, where the top, 
the top line uh, towards the right, the big box. Uh, they're listed there. These ten fetters are uprooted. And uh, Carol told me Sayadaw Upandita would often talk about this, and he would call the fetters the armies of Mara, you know, Mara's uh, henchmen that are out to keep us in ignorance, and that the practice is to uproot these fetters. So this can be a really helpful model, as I said, to lay out the map um, and to give us a sense of the terrain. But it also can be limiting because I think all of us have our unique unfolding and actually, I think, experience many moments of awakening, many moments of insight, and many both personal and impersonal fetters that get uprooted. So just want to emphasize the map can be helpful not to limit ourselves to this is the only way that it manifests, um, that it's much more fluid and personal than perhaps the map might show us. And the Buddha also often talked about what he called the gradual training, and he used some beautiful similes to uh, point to that. And this is one that he often spoke about. Just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, with a sharp drop-off only after a long stretch, in the same way this Dharma and Vinaya has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression with a penetration to wisdom only after a long stretch. This is one of the amazing and astounding facts of this Dharma and Vinaya. And so this idea of a gradual training that's very gentle and it's not until we're deep in the training that that drop-off, that deep, full awakening happens. But the point is, if you keep walking in that direction, in the right direction, even though it's gradual, there's only one way it's going and you will ultimately be completely immersed in that, the water of the ocean. And I don't know if we've talked about this yet uh, in talking about the Four Noble Truths. Carol's been going through them. That The Four Noble Truths were, were the heart of the Buddha's first discourse. After his awakening, he pondered whether he should teach or not. I think I mentioned that. He decided to teach, and he set out and found these five ascetics, five friends he'd been practicing with. And the teaching that he chose to give them that encapsulated his understanding was the Four Noble Truths about suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering. And it's said that in hearing that discourse of the five ascetics, one, Kondanya, became a stream enterer, the first stage of awakening. And so it's a famous phrase in the suttas, Kondanya knows, the Buddha said. Ah, Kondanya knows. It's interesting that the second discourse that he gave to these same five was a teaching on not-self that Brian gave the other night. Out of that discourse, all five became fully awakened. So um, just an example of the possibility of that happening. And In fact, throughout the text, there are examples of people becoming enlightened through hearing a discourse. So please do let me know. I'd be very happy if that should happen to you tonight. 
So the first of these um, stages of awakening that Kondanya knew, uh, realized from the first discourse, is called Sotapanna. The literal, or the uh, translation of it is stream enterer or stream winner. And what it is, is entering the stream that flows to Nibbana, that flows to full awakening, a stream that goes in one direction only. And in the Buddha's time, there were many, many, many people, both monastic and lay, who had this experience of waking up to this level. Quite common. Uh, the Buddha would talk about, oh, you're so-and-so and so-and-so, or he'd give us discourse, and it was always 500 people, it just means many or a lot, would uh, enter the stream of awakening. And when they talked about what happened, he would often use language like the stainless vision of the Dhamma arose or the dustless immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in this person. And it's interesting language as not uh, something that doesn't speak so directly to us, but just something pure is recognized or known. I think that's what we can take from this. And it's said that someone who uh, enters this, has this experience, is not born into the states of suffering. Uh, in my chart and my other talk, I talked about the different realms, and there were the animal realms and the different forms of hell realms. It said if someone who's a sotapanna does not get reborn into those realms and actually only has seven more rebirths before they attain full enlightenment. That's the selling point of the sotapanna, um, whether you believe it or not. Uh, there's many different descriptions, again, about what this person actually understands or knows in this experience. Key to it is the seeing of impermanence, often framed as all things are conditioned, just this recognition of dependent arising that I spoke about, we've talked about impermanence, and that seeing of that to the profound level of insight, not intellectually, but just seeing it powerfully for yourself that all things are conditioned, not ari arising due to causes and conditions. That was often the central theme of the awakening moment. And all with that would often come right view, the understanding, in, and again, these understandings are not just memorizing a list, but understanding deeply the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path, dependent origination that I spoke about the other night, that this person who's seen in this way doesn't cling to the five aggregates, form, feeling, uh, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Now the whole talk, but that's a common way that this kind of experience is understood. And in this person, faith and wisdom are cultivated. Faith and wisdom are brought to, to um, deeper experiences. And there are said to be four factors that support this awakening. Association with, it says, superior persons. It basically means wiser people than yourself. Hearing the true Dhamma, Careful or wise attention, yonaso manasikara. I think we've talked about that. The kind of attention that develops wholesome qualities in the mind and heart doesn't lead to suffering. And practice in accordance with the Dhamma. So association with the wise, 
hearing the Dhamma, the true Dhamma, wise attention, and practicing. Does that sound at all familiar to you? You know, we create the conditions on retreat for this kind of experience to happen. These are the very factors that the Buddha said again and again support this kind of opening. So we're doing what he said to do. And what is the effect? What happens um, in this experience? Again, lots of things being written about it, but one of the ways the Buddha clearly talked about it is three of the ten fetters are uprooted at this stage of understanding or knowing. And their identity view, Sakaya Ditti, which is the belief in a solid, enduring self, that doubt, vichicca, I always get that wrong, vichicca, chicca, doubt about the Buddha's teachings. Um, it's not all kind of doubt, but doubt is about the teachings and that this path leads to awakening. That kind of doubt is removed. And um, belief in the power of rites and rituals to actually bring freedom or happiness, silabhata paramasa. So I'll just go through those so we can get a sense of how we are waking up to these through our practice here. So the first one, identity view, Sakaya Ditti, is a belief in a solid, enduring self. Again, Brian spoke about this the other night, and he may have said the Buddha, you know, when, when pressed, didn't say, you know, no self. The teaching is not self, that these things that we take to be self, our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, our personality, within those experiences, we cannot find anything that's solid or enduring that we can say is self. This is not to deny the sense of self. This is so pervasive, um, real for us, But it is just that, a sense of self. And we see that it has the same characteristics as everything else. It's impermanent, it's conditioned, and if we try to hold on to it, try to have it not change, try to find permanent happiness there, it will lead to suffering, this very self that we're clinging to. So... This what is seen through is that we start to have a different relationship to the self. We see it for what it is, just as we see a thought for what a thought is, an arising in the mind. You could say the self is almost the same, an arising or a concept in the mind. Ajahn Sumedho, who's such a wonderful teacher, talks often about Sakaya Ditti because it is a place of a lot of confusion, personality view and how we hold fast to it. And on one retreat, right here at Spirit Rock, I sit with Ajahn Sumedho whenever I can, whenever he comes here. He was talking about it so much, and now as I've told this story a few times, I can't remember whether it was me or someone else. You know how you kind of appropriate memories, but someone raised their hand and said, Ajahn Sumedho, aren't you beyond that by now? I mean, he's one of the more awakened people that I know, especially of Westerners. Aren't you beyond that? Because he would talk very humbly about the times he would get angry or fearful or judging or whatever. And he just said, you know, it still arises, but now I just laugh at it. And it was just this real transparency. Yes, this habit energy is strong, 
but I don't believe it in the same way. And I think that's a really healthy way to relate to this. We're not looking to create a vacuum where something was and now there's nothing. All we're saying is look and see what's actually there. What's your direct experience of self? And see, as I said, it has the same characteristics as everything else arising and passing. And actually, we need a healthy sense of self to be able to practice, to have the confidence that we can do this, to cultivate the wholesome, and to actually, you know, refine and purify our minds. A healthy sense of self is necessary. But when we see it with understanding, we see when we can also put it down, see through it, not be caught in the illusion of self. So this is one of the things that gets seen through in this first stage of awakening. The next is doubt. As I said already, not each and every doubt, it's not like you'll never have doubt again, but doubt that this path of practice goes in one direction only, to more freedom and less suffering, and that the Buddha's teachings can take us there. That's the kind of doubt that gets eradicated. And so a confidence in the path that awakening is possible, and not in some vague sense even, but that it's possible for us, whatever that might look like for you. And again, you know, just to acknowledge, we all have different relationships to how much of a motivator or an inspiration that is, but that this path and practice can lead us to more freedom and less suffering. You wouldn't be here on a month retreat unless you had some real faith in that. And yeah, as I said, doubt can still come. It doesn't eradicate every doubt. But to keep affirming for yourself that that really is there. And then the last, uh, Sila Bhatta Paramasa, belief in rites and rituals. Again, um, I think it's helpful to understand these teachings in the context of the Buddha and his time. He lived in an agrarian economy. Basis of the caste system was in place. There were four castes at the top of which were the Brahmins, who were the priests who held the power over the spiritual life of the community. And they led rites and rituals that would help people, um, you know, they would pray for, you know, good harvest or, you know, wealth or to be, you know, relieved of their bad actions or whatever. And they would do it through these kind of purification rituals of water or fire or sacrifice. This was very common in the Buddha's times. And the ascetic practices that the Buddha taught, this is the same kind, oh, if I mortify the body, then that will lead me to freedom. And the the Buddha said, put very central to his idea of freedom that that does not do it. There's actually some sort of funny stories in the suttas, you know, from our perspective about how people held these beliefs in, in his time. And if you go to India today, you can still see people practicing in some of these ways, the sadhus and the gurus who have these beliefs about purification, etc. Um, and the Buddha would say no. And this is a, from the suttas, a story of the ox and the dog, duty ascetic. And then Punya, the son of the Kalyans, an ox duty ascetic, 
and also Senia, a naked dog duty ascetic, went to the Blessed One. Punya paid homage and sat down at one side, while Senya, the naked dog duty ascetic, exchanged greetings. He too sat down at one side, curled up like a dog. Because what a dog duty ascetic does, the duty is to act like a dog. And so Punya, the ox duty ascetic, asked the Buddha, here's this guy over here acting like a dog, what's going to happen to him? And the Buddha says, don't ask. (laughs) But Punya does, he asks again, and the Buddha says, no, don't ask. And you know the trick, if you meet a Buddha, you ask three times. So Punya asks three times, here's this dog duty ascetic who does what it is hard to do. He eats his food when it is thrown to the ground, his long taken up and practiced that dog duty ascetic. What will be his destination? What will be his future course? And the Buddha, having said three times no, he says, okay, I'll tell you. If he develops the dog mind fully and uninterruptedly, he develops a dog behavior fully and uninterruptedly, having done so, um, the dog duty, the dog mind, and the dog behavior, after death, he reappears in the company of dogs. And If he has the view by this practice, I shall become a great god or some lesser god, this is the wrong view in his case. There are two destinations of one with wrong view, hell or the animal realm. So Punya, if his dog duty succeeds, it will lead him to the company of dogs. If it fails, it will lead him to the states of woe. When this was said, Senia, the naked dog duty ascetic, cried out and burst into tears. (laughs) So I read that just to give a sense, you know, that's in the Buddhist time, there were those beliefs that these practices, these rites and rituals could lead to awakening or, you know, Senia's view to be born as a god. Now we can sort of look at that and say, oh, not me. I don't believe things like that. But we do to some extent, don't we? You know, any of you have a lucky talisman? Don't walk under ladders? your hat that you wear when you want your team to win, you know, it's called transductive thinking. Oh, I washed my car, you wash your car and then it rains, dang, it was because I washed my car that it rained. You know, we have this kind of magical thinking at times. And the Buddha's point is, no, you know, the only thing that purifies the mind or that can change the karmic unfolding is wisdom, is clear seeing. So the common description of this experience, the result of it is um, often a cessation. As I said, this clear seeing that everything that arises ceases. The experience itself can often be one of cessation. And Carol was talking about this last night, that there's just a clear penetration into that things arise and pass, and the passing away, the cessation is really quite profound. But out of that seeing, clear seeing, said that these four qualities are developed, that faith in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, that they actually become the refuges that we chant every evening when we do the chanting or when we take the precepts. And that so those three, faith in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, and a firm establishment in virtue in sila, in the precepts. That someone who's had this kind of awakening is really committed to an ethical life 
and has faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So even saying that, it can seem like, oh, that's, el- that's not me. I, I, I can't do that. You know, I might waver here and there around the precepts or my faith sometimes not perfect. That's why I loved reading the suttas and all these stories. Sarakani the Sakyan was too weak for the training. He drank intoxicating drink, it said. But the Buddha declared him a stream enterer because of his faith. So if one aspect of these four is strong, it's still possible to be a stream enterer. So it doesn't have to be perfect. I love it when Greg says, you don't even have to be very good at this, and it still works. <laughs> so that's uh, Sotapanna. The next, um, I won't talk so much on once returner, Sakadagami said this once returner is only born once more in a human realm and then after that um, will either be fully awakened or be reborn in the higher realms that I spoke about in uh, my talk on the different realms. And it said that the Sakadagami has eradicated the first three fetters, like the Sotapanna, and weakened sense desire and ill will. So this can happen as a cumulative thing. You know, someone can go through the Sotapanna experience, and then over time, the Sakadagami, or someone could just, you know, get straight there, however they might do that. It's interesting, it's not talked a lot about in the suttas or even the commentaries, it's basically you just keep going, and that's the practice. Um, But what's interesting is even though it's considered a a second stage of awakening, all that happens is the first three are uprooted, but the sense, desire, and ill will are just weakened. And I always find this interesting. It just points to the power, the entrenched nature of sense, desire, and ill will, that just weakening them is enough to cause this dramatic shift in our experience and be considered a stage of awakening. And then the next stage, the third stage, non-returner anagami, um, in that you don't return to the human realm, so you're born in the non-human realms and finish your practice, you're enlightened there. And so this, uh, the anagami has eradicated the first five fetters, so the three that go with um, the sotapanna, and then they've eradicated sense, desire, and ill will. Gone from the mind. Often the terminology is uprooted, not to arise again. And I just again like to ponder, what would that be like for us? To have a mind where sense, desire, and ill will did not arise. And again, we can make this seem some distant thing. Oh, I don't know, never happened for me. But I, I actually think that all of us have touched that. That's what, you know, Carol spoke last night about Buddha Dasa's temporary nibbana, that coolness that refreshes us, or else we'd all go a little crazy. We have all touched the ending of desire the ending of it will, and known the mind that's at peace. 
even if it's for a moment. But no one can take that away from you when you've touched that. And that's knowing the mind of an anagami. Mightn't be permanent, you know, they may come back. But we really don't want to downplay, ignore, dismiss the power of those moments. That's why we keep talking about cultivating the wholesome and recognizing the wholesome states of mind when we're there. The very recognition of them is a powerful support for them to actually manifest more and more. So not the no, never for me, not that, but in the simplest of ways, the mind that's at peace, the mind that's let go of pushing and pulling against or for experience, even in a moment. It doesn't have to be in formal meditation. Perhaps it was you know, watching that beautiful constellation of moon, Mars and Venus the other night, and the mind was just still. You can't own the moon, Mars and Venus. You can't make it stay in that formation. It's gone, right? So the mind was still as you observed that. Out in nature, taking a step or a cup of tea, very simple sometimes. And then the last of these stages is the arahat, or arahant, arahat in uh, Pali with the N in san- Sanskrit. And that person has eradicated all the fetters, completely uprooted. The first five that I've spoken about, but then the last five, that's an interesting list. Uh, The first one is lust for material existence, and the second lust for immaterial existence. And they're basically to do with the experience of deep jhana or absorption, and the mind that really wants to hang out in those places. Uh, The Buddha's first teachers were ones who taught these deep stages, stages, and they were basically... um, what they taught is enlightenment. And the Buddha said, no, you have to let go of that too. The mind is really to release. So uh, a real passion or wanting to stay in these very refined states of concentration. But then the next three are really interesting. Pride in self or conceit or comparing. Mano or asmi mano, arrogance that that is there, late in this list. Restlessness is one of the last fetters to go. Udachaka, udacha. And ignorance, avidya, that we can understand. But restlessness and comparing, you've often heard us say that kind of flippantly, oh, one of the last to go, you know, make friends with it, it'll be here for a while. But I've always been really curious about that. Restlessness comparing or conceit. When we talk about them at this level of practice or understanding, they're very subtle. They're not what we all experienced on the first days of our retreat or even now, especially this fetter of restlessness. It's so common. I actually consider it the, the, the single most difficult um, hindrance for most Westerners. I give a whole talk on it because... I see it feeding all the other hindrances. But again, from the island, the restlessness to which this refers is not the fidgeting of the uncomfortable meditator. It is the subtlest of feelings that there might be something better over there or just in the future. 
a feeling that that which is out of reach might have more value than this. It is the ever so insidious addiction to time and its promises. So it's a very subtle restlessness of mind. That one that just says, not good enough, not okay. The mind can be very still and that can be there. There's a great interchange in the suttas between Anuruddha and Sariputta that speaks to this subtlety of mind at this stage. Then Venerable Anuruddha went to where where Venerable Sariputta was staying and on arrival greeted him courteously. He said to Sariputta, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. My energy is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness. And yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging. Would you like to have that as your interview report? (laughs) But, you know, my mind is still not released. And Sariputta says, my friend, when the thought occurs to you, by the means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos, that is related to your conceit. When the thought occurs to you, my energy is aroused and unsluggish, my mindfulness is established and unshaken, my body is calm and unperturbed, my mind is concentrated into singleness, that is related to your restlessness. When the thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released from the outthrows through lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety. It would be well if, abandoning these three qualities, not attending to these three qualities, you directed your mind to the deathless element. And then, of course, Anuruddha did that, dwelling alone, secluded, heedful. He, in no long time, reached and remained in the supreme goal of the holy life. So it's very subtle at this stage. And he directed his mind to the deathless, which means that which is still unborn, undying. It's powerful. So again, we can hold this as, you know, something far distant, but the point of why I wanted to give this talk was to actually make it more real or relevant for us. And I have a theory about especially this latter stage of awakening, well, actually the whole, sorry, not the latter stage, the whole unfolding, and why it does unfold in the way it does. And I know as soon as we have theories about things, um, Carol often says, when we get into debates about the mind of the arhant in the marketplace, that's when I leave the room, you know, because it's theory. So I fully admit this is a theory about this. Um, but it makes sense to me. So, the first three fetters that I went through, um, Sakaya Ditti, belief in self, doubt, and uh, rites and rituals, they're cognitive, as in they're learned. They're concepts that we learn. They, they have some basis, you know, basic human uh, tendencies, but we learn them. 
um, you know, rites and rituals, it's obvious that that's, you don't just make them, you learn them, you create them. Doubt about the teachings, you know, you have to learn the teachings through concepts, and even the doubt is a questioning, conceptual kind of doubt, it's not experiential. And belief in a self. Babies aren't born with a, a belief in a sense of self, right? They have to kind of figure out, oh, that hurts. Oh, that, that's, that's me, right? And then all of that sense of separation and self comes, and we start taking in the message of self and who we are. Unfortunately for many of us, that sense of self is often a negative sense of self, that we're not worthy, we're not okay, and we can have a lot of suffering around that. But the powerful, or the point is, if it's learned, it can be unlearned. If it's programmed, it can be reprogrammed or unprogrammed. And that this practice has that power or that capacity to really uh, shift that programming in the mind. But it's at that kind of level that it can work, the conceptual Um, So this is the human brain right here at the front, you know, the one that we developed to help us figure a lot of stuff out and it's great and it gets gets us into trouble a lot. So this is the human brain. And in the second and third stage, we're decreasing or eradicating lust and aversion, sensual desire and aversion. These are very primal emotions. And you could say that's at the kind of mammalian brain, the deeper brain. If you know this theory about the triune brain, the human, and then the mammalian brain, it's very instinctive, it's very heart-based, and it's it's not a lot of concepts or words, right? This is a very sort of impulse level of, um, of, of, of experience. And so it's very much like our animal nature, when our emotions are strong, especially these of greed and aversion. It has that level. And then the fourth stage, where these five uh, fetters get uprooted, I must admit that the first two don't quite fit in my theory about the jhana subtle stage. So, you know, we could put those aside. But the other three, (laughs) I said it was a theory. The other three are extremely primal. Restlessness, conceit, and ignorance. And I really see them as related to um, the amygdala, this very, you could call it the reptilian brain, where it's this very primitive response to the world. Look at any wild animal, fight or flight, you know, and that we have that in our DNA. A wild animal has to be constantly moving. It's just, you know, you always think of I guess I I thought, well, maybe not a sloth, but, you know, they're just moving slowly, right? But they're moving. It's out of protection, you know, feeding, finding food, um, finding safe places to, to, to live, finding sexual partners, procreating. This movement and self preservation, this DNA is not that much different from these kinds of animals. And People may have heard me say this before, but you know our ancestors who were the ones who, when the bush over there rustled, and they said, don't worry about that, what could go wrong? They're not our ancestors, because, you know, that was when the lion or the tiger or whatever leapt out, and they're not here. We're the progeny of the ones that said, oh my God, what was that? Let's get moving, you know, let's get out of here. So that level of self-preservation, restlessness, 
is deep within us. And in that, there's also this kind of comparing, you know, where we have to figure out, do I eat it or does it eat me? This is really deeply programmed. You know, look at a chipmunk hoarding its, its, its nuts for the winter. It's like, mine, mine. And there's not a lot of thinking around that, right? It's just mine. You, I'm sure you have your little hoard of whatever, it, you know, mine. And it doesn't have to be... A lot of concept. It's really deep in there, right? So I say this so we understand why it's so hard. Why these are the last fetters to go. I think they're very deeply programmed and very subtle. You know, in the mind that's really still, these just very subtle movements in and out of restlessness or self. It's not even I'm a self or body a self. It's just that sense of separation. But the good news is that transformation, transformational insight is not that remote. For you, for you in this lifetime, we don't have to wait for full awakening or some ecstatic transcendent experience, you know, that only me, once I get rid of all these aspects of myself, can I experience you know, to have some deep, powerful cessation experience, but actually to look at the quality of your mind and heart right now. Are the sotapanna factors there? As I said, these four things that the Buddha said, these are the foundations for sotapanna. Association with the wise, hearing the true Dhamma, yonasomanisikara, wise attention, and practice, practicing the Dhamma. Don't make it something that happens to everyone else and not you. And even around these fetters, those first three, you know, we can reflect, have, you know, how do we relate to them? You know, you mightn't have had some powerful not no self-experience where the void just opened up. I don't think that's even what it is. I think it's seeing again and again how the self arises. If we feed it, it solidifies. If we see it for what it is, it disappears. And we've probably all had moments of that. And, you know, the sense of self will come back. Of course it will, as Ajahn Sumedho says. But once we've seen through it, once we know it for what it is, it doesn't fool us as much or as often or as completely. So we see that we have this kind of understanding. We don't believe that if, you know, I make sacrifices or I, you know, sit in a certain way that everything will be okay. We know it's about the transformation of the mind and heart. And I think it's interesting actually just to play with this a little. So imagine if we just said at the end of the month, okay, you're all sotapanas. Would that make any difference? And if so, what? And in, there's a joking way in which you say, no, of course not, because the experience is different. But if we have actually said, no, really, you know, this is it, you'd be like, oh, okay, well, maybe, you know, and, and we actually then act as though we were. And so that's what Chinul was talking about. It's not just, you know, the, the, the experience of enlightenment, it's acting. If, as if you're enlightened. And actually, 
living from that place. So we talk about practice as practicing being awake. And then we carry that practice into our lives. And it's possible for all of us. Someone And someone told me this was actually... Um, oh, and I've forgotten his name. Osho. What's his other name? Rajneesh says, Enlightenment is an accident, but retreats make us accident-prone. So we, we create the right conditions. And in the end, it's not about, you know, getting a grade or a gold star. If you go home at the end of the retreat, you know, people say, what did you get out of it? You know, I got my certificate. You know, people often ask, are you enlightened? Who's enlightened? Who can I go see who's enlightened? And I don't even know whether that's the right question. Because the real issue is, is there freedom right now? Is there happiness right now? And now, and now, because we can't just hold on to our certificate, put it away in a drawer. It doesn't help, does it? How many certificates have you collected in your life? How much can you remember from your high school algebra? You know, it doesn't help. But now, and now, and now. And I think we've probably used this phrase from Ajahn Chah. If you let go a little, you get a little peace. You let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. You let go completely, you get complete peace. This is the gradual path. And Ajahn Sumedho, just seeing anicca, dukkha, anatta is limited to the conditioned realm. It is not the end of the path, nibbana. But don't hold nibbana up as some high ideal. Then we don't realize it when it's present. Bring nibbana to the here and now, the point that includes everything, ekagata. Nibbana is non-grasping. We just have to know what non-grasping is. To recognize attachment when it happens, it's like this. You don't have to throw everything away to prove you are non-attached. Very simple. And I want to finish with something that to, for me was helpful. Someone here on the retreat has a daughter who has a blog. Um, she's been a nun in Japan for four years, and she's a bright, amazing being, and it was a wonderful uh, um, teaching about Dogen's teaching about to be enlightened by the self. But what struck my mind was an interaction she had with a Bhutanese monk at some Japanese ceremony that she was not at all enthusiastic about going to because it's very formal and She's often the only woman there, but she met this Bhutanese monk, and she said he'd been a Bhutanese monk for more than 20 years since he was 16 and was wonderfully laid back and happy. Our hearts will always change, he said, making the motion of something rising and falling like a wave. Sometimes we have lots of faith, and sometimes we won't. So the most important thing in Buddhism is just to continue. And I just like that his happiness, his lightness, and just continue. If you remember, someone already quoted Bhikkhu Bodhi, only two things, forget this whole list, forget that, only two things you need to be successful in this path, to start and keep going. So let's all just keep going by sitting still for a moment.
So we stop and we keep going every moment. Thank you. Please come back nine o'clock. Join the voices of chanting the words of loving kindness. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.